Malcolm Gladwell famously made popular the idea of 10,000 hours of practice for mastery in his book, Outliers. Now, that comes with all sorts of caveats, not least that it's not actually his idea. It comes from Anders Ericsson, who has his own book called Peak. But the concept holds up an interesting mirror. Just the other day, I was talking to 22, maybe 23-year-old, and he asked me, how do you start writing books? Now, honestly, I, I didn't have an easy answer. And as I was trying to figure that out, and as I was trying to explain it to him, I realized that I'd been writing to find my own voice for 40 years now. <laughs> I know. How can I be so young and yet not so young? You know, I wrote newsletters and contributions at university, both in Australia and in England. I wrote newsletters for summer intern jobs that I had. And once I started my own business, I've been writing a newsletter for 22 years and a minimum of once a month, often at a more regular pace than that. Now, I don't feel that I've mastered writing, but it really stands, the skill level I have with writing, really stands in contrast, for instance, with bouldering, a sport that I've just started to learn. Now, bouldering is when you do rock climbing in a gym, but without ropes. So it's just you kind of clambering over nooks and crannies and holes. The difference between me trying to haul myself up a very basic climb in the gym, and trust me, this is not a pretty sight, versus someone who's been doing it for ages, just shows the chasm-wide gap between grace and agility and play, delight, and honestly, mostly perhaps a really nuanced understanding about what rules I can and can't break. I've probably got some of that nuance with writing. I mean, I must have written, I don't know, a billion sentences by now, and I've really come to understand where my edge is. And perhaps that's what mastery is. It's not a finishing of something, it's not a completion, but it's an increasingly subtle understanding of where you're honing the edge of yourself and of your craft. Welcome to Two Pages with MBS, the podcast with brilliant people. Read the best two pages from a favorite book, a book that has moved them, a book that has shaped them. Now, Eric Klein is first and foremost a dear friend, and he's also a returning guest because I'm pretty sure he's been on every single podcast I've ever created. Um, the We Will Get Through It podcast, the Great Work Interviews podcast, the Coaching podcast, all of these historical podcasts, which by the way, you can hear episodes on if you search for Best of MBS. There's a podcast that's kind of just digging through the archives and, and presenting those episodes. So just need more of me talking to interesting people. Best of MBS is a good resource for you. Now, Eric's also a spiritual teacher and he's an author. And five years ago, perhaps I would have added that his focus would be bringing greater spirit and mindfulness and meaning to the workplace. I think that shifted a bit now. Now it's more about offering the same to his community at wisdomheart.com, helping people really to be on a spiritual path while still walking in the world. Now, a spiritual experience is often shaped by the container in which we grow up. For instance, I had agnostic parents and I grew up the same. Now, what called me early on was playing soccer in the backyard with my brothers and reading The Lord of the Rings. Eric, on the other hand, heard the whispering of something else, 
from the beginning. I am someone who's been interested in spiritual development from very, very early in my life. I didn't have the language for it, but I had the experience of mystery and wonder and something beyond my normal, like, Ericness. This would seem to put Eric at odds with his intellectual, successful, and upwardly mobile Jewish family in New York City. Or at least it would seem to put him at odds with it. But Eric, early and quickly, found a way of weaving together the two sides of his life, spiritual and business, by asking a simple yet powerful question. How do we create a world we want to live in? You know, and how do we create a world that other people might want to join us in living in? And now I'm primarily focused on helping people cultivate that wonder, joy, and awareness of the truth that's beyond whatever they think they are. You know? <laughs> people talk about hearing a spiritual call, and it seems like Eric really did hear one. He had a moment. I wanted to know what that actually sounds like. Because, honestly, I can't quite imagine it. I think it sounds like this paradoxical experience of something that's absolutely fresh and, and su totally surprising and, at the same time, so intimately familiar. Right. That you, you just, you, in a way, so, the, you know, metaphor from all over the world, coming home, you know, that's like that familiarity okay. part. But also the other part of it is like you're breaking into a whole new reality. So, right. it, you know, it, it kind of has the best of both worlds in terms of like the wonder of something completely unexpected and the, the restfulness of arriving exactly where you've always been. And so that's something most people, when they have that experience, you know, it's so nourishing to our nervous system. We want that, well, more, more of that. Well, let me ask you this. What, what does it feel like? What did it feel like as a, a 17-year-old Yeah, yeah. when you're hearing it for the first time? Because I'm not sure I've ever I've heard the call. And um, so I'm like, you know, how do you notice oh, yeah. that there's a spiritual path or a spiritual doorway or a spiritual threshold, something yeah. for you to take a right rather than carry on the, the path you were on? Right. I think that's something also really important that you're say, pointing to, which is that um, in a funny way, it's so um, it's so obvious almost that it's easy to ignore it. Just, <laughs> and it's almost like, and it's this sort of, that's one aspect. And it's also, um, we're not acclimated. That's one way to say it. We're not we're not acclimated. You know, in Tibetan, the word for meditation is, the, the, I can't pronounce it right, but gom, G-O-M, as we say it in English. And it means in Tibetan, it means to become familiar with. Mm -hmm. So it's like, you know, meditating in that sense, spiritual practice in that sense, is becoming familiar with something that's already there. <laughs> it's like, right. but we're not familiar enough to notice it. You know, right. so we're not intimate with it. We're not comfortable familiar enough with it to yeah, recognize yeah. when it's happening. So, you know, it's probably you have heard the call, but maybe you haven't coded it that way. And you're right. Yeah. And no. it's, it could be just the sense of joy, the yeah. sense of like everything is actually fine exactly the way it is, you know. 
And, you know, we all, we're all conditioned to code our experiences according to whatever we're conditioned to code it as. Yeah. So, yeah. you know, you might interpret it not as a spiritual call. Yeah. Now, sometimes people have um, a, like a, a Paul on the road to Tarsus, if I got that right from that yeah. tradition, you know, where it's like knocks you on your ass and you're like, oh my God, I can't. Even, on, even I can't ignore this. Yeah. I can't ignore this anymore. You know, you could say that. I think that's what I'm looking for, Eric. (laughs) Like, it's already slapped me around the head. Yeah. You know, more in a funny way, the more you're actually uh, familiar with it, even without having coded it as spiritual, the less disturbing it is. Because it's more already, you know, joyfulness, presence, maybe already a natural part of your being, right? The way you operate. And so, you know, it doesn't seem as startling. As you know, like in the idea of hitting bottom, you know, yeah, you really yeah. have to go down to, before you're going to come up. So, I don't know if that answers the question. <laughs> it feels to me like, like I did have a moment when I went to my very first yoga class of a real shift Bothered. of um, kind of where everything fell away and all my constructs of identity and fell away and everything was vast openness and absolute stillness and beauty and wow. and I couldn't ignore that really <laughs> it was quite a shock yeah yeah and I just said and I was you know so I was 17 just about just turning 17 and I had all the enthusiasm of that age of going I found the thing you know <laughs> I must have this <laughs> so Eric you, you you have that moment as uh-huh. a 16, 17 year old where, and you're like, as you said, I can't ignore that. Uh-huh. But if you're saying yes to that, you had to say no to uh-huh. people and paths and expectations. Yeah. Who and what did you have to say no to? It's good. I think, um, I'll, I'll say that I, I think it wasn't, first of all, a clean no, <laughs> that it was a process of iteratively discerning no and yes mm-hmm. okay you know so at first it was no i'm not going to college mm-hmm. right like out of preppy you know everyone else and was going to college i'm going to the mountains and i'm going to find this a yoga life looking back on it i can see <laughs> some of that was pure 17 year old 18 year oldness yeah. okay and uh, and avoiding certain challenges that the path that my family was offering right was not a present okay but i did have to say no to that initially okay and then you know you've known me through my career life mm-hmm. So I said yes to, I want this awakening life. I want this spiritual life. So I thought I had to say no to a certain forms of conventional living. <laughs> and, I, and actually my spiritual teacher was the one who said to me when I was 19, so not that long into oh, this, no, no. he said, you need to, in his language, he said, you need to go out and earn the soybean bacon, which was <laughs> like, get a job essentially. Right. Right. Be the accountant. You were destined to be Eric. <laughs> exactly. So, you know, 
I said no to him, really, and yeah. that, that instruction, because I thought I could hack the process wow. and not come to terms with my inheritance, my life uh, background and the material world. You know, I thought yeah. I could somehow bypass that into a magical spirituality. And uh, bypass was the term the psychologists use. Hacking is the term, I think, that's more yeah. popular these days. Yeah. Like, and there's no skipping steps, man. That's just not. So the <laughs> iter the no and the yes has been this refining yeah. of discovering. Um, mostly it's saying no to self-protection. Love. And saying yes to radical openness and engagement with life. The phrase you used of coming to terms with your inheritance, yeah. it's a really interesting one. It feels powerful and loaded. Well, what does it mean to you? To me, in my life, it's meant, um, so there's the, you know, first let's step back for a second. We all have our family narrative and but. cultural narrative and that we were thrust into, you know, and, and we imbibed before we had any discernment filters, right? And um, and we also had sort of the situation that we fell into when we were born. So for me, it was a, you proved yourself by your um, smarts and your work, your uh, net worth. Yeah. yeah. That's how you prove, yeah, that's how you proved your value. Right. In, in this culture that I was born into, which was by being really I'm a, clever, I'm a clever, wealthy person. I'm a clever, wealthy that, person. That so status. I, I fooled, you know, it's sort of, a, it's, it's, a, it's, it's not just Jewish, but in the Jewish context, it's sort of, we beat them. You know, it's <laughs> right. like that right. kind of a thing. Yeah. And um, so that was a big piece of it. And, and there was something about that that definitely I still have to work with. Mm. And there was something about it also that just didn't nourish me full in a complete way. Yeah, yeah. And so it's coming to terms with that. And I don't think where I'm at at this point in my life is I don't think it's like coming to terms with it like it's a problem to be solved or anything. I think it's right. more like it's like the curriculum. You know, whatever your situation is, that's your perfect journey <laughs> or like wrestling yeah. with whatever it presents, you know, whatever it is. Yeah. And because that's the only thing you have to work with anyway, you know? Right. Yeah. Right. You are the work. Yeah. Eric, what book have you chosen to read from? Okay. Well, it does relate to all this. It's <laughs> called the Bhagavad Gita. It's a right. an ancient text from the Sanskrit and yogic tradition um, that I have loved, loved, loved for many, many, many years. I mentioned it must have been one of those first texts you met as a young man. It is, and it's... And it's you know, it, it is the, it's, what I love about it is it's just, it's, it's on, it's set on a battlefield. It starts with a moment of absolute despair. <laughs> In fact, it's like chapter one is loosely translated, the path of awakening through despondency. <laughs> That's where it starts. It's like, and the right. two characters, you know, it's like, oh my God, I think it's, it's sort of an ignore, just the title of that chapter is such a teaching and it's ignored well, often in the because there's 18 other there's 17 other chapters where all right. the sort of teaching takes place yeah but the, the setup is <laughs> yeah all the teaching is... takes place right here where you're <laughs> completely 
bummed yeah. out, <laughs> right? And 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 in battle in and under threat, <laughs> you, know, you are besieged by life. Welcome yeah. to the learning. Yeah, but, it's like that doesn't sound like you know usually the pitch for the yoga retreat that you know you see <laughs> when you're going to go to Bali or whatever yeah. Costa Rica and yeah. be so blissed out, which is beautiful. It's just like. The Gita is saying, yeah, the yoga happens really when you're just up against it. Yeah. I know you've, um, rather than trying to read two pages straight, you've done a little curating around that. Yeah. Um, so um, I'm just going to, I think, give you the stage and, and okay. listen to you read from the Bhagavad Gita, which I'm thrilled about because you, know, you and I talked about it forever. Uh -huh. I've never read it. Okay. Your talking has never inspired me enough to actually pick the book up. <laughs> Not that inspired. So, no, exactly. So if you could, if you could step up, please, on this reading, that would be helpful for for everybody involved. <laughs> well, I've tried to do is to take it's an eighteen chapter uh, text, yeah. and and I'll set the stage a little bit. I did a, it's please. a dialogue between two characters. Arjuna this is the warrior prince, and Krishna, who's his charioteer, but also happens to be God. Okay. <laughs> If you and don't I, have a chauffeur, that's a good chauffeur to have. Yeah. It's 18 chapters. I've tried what I tried to do was I went through it and I took a like a sentence or two mm. from almost every chapter. So we kind that's of follow the arc of the conversation. Because it's a conversation that, as I said, begins with despondency and stuckness. Mm. And it goes through kind of a a sequence of uh questions and answers. Yeah. Most of the time it's Krishna talking periodically. Taking most of those out, Arjuna goes, wait a minute, that makes no sense, you know? <laughs> which is kind of like basically the spiritual path. You, know? right. you receive some insight and then you realize, wait a minute, I don't have a clue and well, that makes no sense and you get more. Right. You receive it, you resist yeah. it and more stuff yeah. opens. Yeah. The lotus continues to blossom. Arjun says, my will is paralyzed and I am utterly confused. In the dark night of my soul, I feel desolation. Arjuna, the great warrior, unburdened his heart and said, I will not fight. Now Krishna speaks. He says, you speak sincerely what you were taught to believe, but your sorrow is unwarranted. Realize that which pervades the universe none can destroy this imperishable presence. You are responsible strictly in regard to taking action alone, but not for the results of those actions. Established in yoga, perform action, become equal to success or failure, for yoga is equanimity. One who shirks action does not attain freedom. No one can be free by abstaining from work. Indeed, there's no one who can rest for even an instant. All are driven to action by their own nature. So it is better to strive even imperfectly in one's own dharma or process than to succeed in the dharma of another. Doing another's dharma simply breeds fear and insecurity. One who sees inaction in action and sees action in inaction is awakened and does all in the spirit of service. Their karma is dissolved. Cut through the conditioned doubts in your heart with experiential knowledge. Stand up 
and take the path of yoga. Keep your head, trunk, and spine in a straight line. In the stillness, the secret of self will unwind. In the depths of meditation, the self reveals itself, and the meditator knows the joy and peace of fulfillment. Now, Arjuna says, Krishna, how can we find this yoga piece of soul? How can it be known, even with self-control? I don't see how the mind can be stressless. The mind is ever restless. Krishna responds, the mind is restless, no doubt. It's difficult to make devout, but it can be brought under control by constant practice and detachment of the soul. I am, Krishna says, the origin of all beings. I am the intelligence of the intelligent, the radiance of the radiant. I am the strength of the strong. I am desire itself in harmony with life. I am the goal and the path. I am the witness and the home, the refuge in need. I am the friend and the beginning, the middle and the end. I'm the treasure house of all possibilities. I am the gambling of the gambler. I am the splendor of the splendid. I am victory and I am firm resolve. Only by attuned love can I be known. Only by single-minded devotion can I be seen as the one in motion. So take heart, take wholehearted action, attune to me and you'll reach the timeless state. You think I will not fight, but that intention is diluted. Your own nature will compel you to act. So show love to me, bear me in mind, attune to me, with me intertwine. I promise that you will be illumined in me because you are my own destiny. Thank you, Eric. Yeah. So clearly in that we have a spiritual curriculum for a lifetime. Totally. <laughs> so I look yeah. forward to seeing what we can cover in the remaining 23 minutes. <laughs> Perfect. All right. Um, what... What would you say about what you've just read? Okay. Um, first, I'll say that I drew from many tra translations. So, But what I think, what, as I've looked at it more and more, what I see is that it starts with confusion. And I love the response, which is you're very sincere, but, you're, but, it's, but it's, it's basically you're just spouting, you're living oh. in your conditioning. You right. know, this whole perspective is built on a foundation of, uh, misapprehension of reality, essentially. Okay. So, you know, when people talk about, but that's, I feel, I really feel it. Of course you do. So what though, really, you know? So there's, he starts, I think it's a sort of the trajectory. First, it's kind of, and it's funny, right before Krishna says this, the, the text says, with a smile. Hmm. It's like, you know, I'm so upset, you know, like you, a friend of yours comes and just so upset and you realize it's so funny because it, you know, yeah. they've been there a million times and they're going to get over it. Okay. So the smile, and then it's like Krishna starts by just saying sort of some spiritual essential teachings. There's some essential teachings about that 
the nature of truth, which is that it's ever present. Reality is presence itself, Literally. but we can't do it. We can't ab absorb that. Then he just starts giving teachings on how to meditate. So it wow. starts, you know, the first thing you might hear is like, hey, it's all good or whatever. It's all God. You know, life is, is teaching you, you know, that's great. But I mean, come on. I can't really <laughs> even take in that idea. Right, right. So the re middle of the book is really about like things like sit up straight, breathing, <laughs> how to settle your mind. You know, mm -hmm. there's like our nervous system coming back to what we saw at the beginning is um, it's kind of not qualified to even receive the wisdom that's being offered endlessly. The feedback of life essentially saying, I know you feel like it's really that way, but it's not. Well, yeah. Okay. So the practice, 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 practices is most of the book. And then it ends up with this kind of revelation that comes out of practice where like the, the, I'm the goal on the path. Yeah. I mean, that's Christian speaking. That's reality speaking. I am every, I'm the gambling of the gambler. You know, oh. that's a great, you don't find that in a lot of spiritual <laughs> tradition no, no. where reality is saying everybody is seeking freedom and they're, we're all trying to get at it through our perspective. Mm. Now, if we really go deep into it and we feel if the gambler, I have many gamblers in my family of origin. Right. And they have described to me the moment when they place, I'm not exaggerating, the $10,000 stack of bills on the one number in front of the roulette wheel, okay, right. that there's a moment of absolute freedom and emptiness right. that arrives. That's what they want. <laughs> right. It's a very clumsy way to get there. <laughs> and, and hard to sustain. And it's sustainable. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Absolutely not sustainable. So he's saying everything we're doing is to get to that fulfillment and yeah. that pure sense of I am life and I am alive in this life that I am. Yeah. Can I so, ask you, Eric? Yeah. So, you know, I love I loved that opening with Krishna going, basically, oh, look, I know it's hard and you're adorable. Exactly. <laughs> um, but... You know, I, I, I feel that place of going, look, you talk about that being the goal and the path on the other side of this, but I quite like my grip on my own conditioning. Like, yeah. There's, there's, yeah. A lot of, there's a lot about how, who I am and how I see the world and how I show up in the world. I'm like, that's, it, it's working. <laughs> it's totally. Fine. It is. It is. So and how do you come to a spiritual I hear you. experience? without it being a crisis because if you're in crisis i can see i can see that's why i wrote a damascus transformation which is like it's terrible yeah, yeah. oh here i go <laughs> totally. if i'm going like i'm i am content yes that is it mike you actually put your finger on the deepest part of this practice okay right and first is it's not the condition it is working like you there's much of your conditioning that you enjoy and it fulfilling for you yeah you know. but it's not the what he would be saying it's not actually the form of it that's the it it's it's the form is the vehicle for you touching that innate right, right, fulfillment right. right and it's this very minor shift wow. of attention to 
resting in the enjoyment of being. Right. And not ascribing it as if it's coming from the condition. It's being revealed through the condition. Yeah. So maybe I'm, I'm, where I go to figuring that out, Eric, is to kind of, when you say, as you did at the end, I'm both the path and the goal. Yeah. You're like, you know, it means that my contentment in, in my non-spiritual practice, which which is my life, which is somehow touching some degree of spiritual awakening, is when I realize it's, it's neither the path or the goal that I've hit that is connecting to that. It's somehow all of it and none of it. Beautiful. <laughs> and it says that, that verse in here where he says, it's better, uh, I'm going to use a different translation, better to do your own dharma. Mm imperfectly or my teacher says better to do your own dharma hassling though it appears to be (laughs) than to do another's glamorously and it's such a great teaching for this current social media age where we we do want to have the glamorous appearance of Mm. fulfillment right that's sort of this but it's and that following our own nature our own true path can be hassling (laughs) there's going to be issues that actually is the path the issues now i just want it to be you know like the ad says it's going to be <laughs> sorry you know right. so yes we're only going to be working with conditions right it's all it's all it's all that's the only thing we have on this side of reality and this is the only side we're on the <laughs> side of experience right so it's always going to be you know, you could hear the Buddha saying it's always going to be conditional and always going to be falling away. And you could hear that as a bummer, or you could just hear it as a description of the fact that the conditions are endlessly going to be changing. Right. If we can find the innate, that's the key, the innate peace or joy or presence, then we can ride through that process with a bit of grace. Eric, what have you learned about what it means to be a teacher of this work because you've been a student for Uh mm, almost half a century yeah Yeah. closing in on that yeah and um but you've also been called to be a teacher and i'm wondering how what you've learned over the years in terms of how to be a teacher one of the things that i've learned is being and it's the thing that you know if you want to learn something teach it kind of thing But if you want to learn how to, in a sense, be uh, abiding in in fulfillment, this is the paradox. You know, the way you abide in ever-deepening fulfillment is by confronting unfulfillment. Not by, yeah, right? Grasping for fulfillment is avoiding the confrontation with the unfulfillment. Right. Okay. So what I've learned as a teacher is that if I'm going to teach this path of yoga, that means I'm going to have to really get honest with confronting my own strategy, my own com- sense of unfulfillment and my own strategies for avoiding facing right. them. And that is a, that's a sucks. Okay. <laughs> you know, it's, and it's the way it's designed. Yeah. Yeah. Is there, is there any let up? I mean, any it- let up? the let up is every moment of realizing <laughs> this is the this is wow <laughs> this is it yeah. yeah i mean today this morning 
Davey and I had one of our moments of falling into our familiar uh, way of pushing each other's buttons, yeah. you know, and it just was like, for whatever reason, it was like we both almost at the same time was like, we're like, it's perfect. <laughs> this is perfect. Right. Okay. And okay. we, so it, that's the moment of freedom, seeing it, just uh -huh. seeing it. Wow. And it is a moment of choice too, because yeah, I can I could keep doing it because I'm very good at the, doing like <laughs> this, and I can also just like I don't know what's next. I can let go and let whatever uh, is emerging, and usually it's humor and love. Um, how do you manage your expertise and mastery? Uh, you know, having having been a student for 50 years you've got a an eloquence and an agility and a deftness around the the ideas and the language and the practices and the concepts and mm -hmm. i find that for me when i'm when i become masterful it's very hard for me not to to keep being masterful yeah <laughs> as opposed to sure as, as opposed to being kind of incompetent yeah it feels like incompetence is part of the part of the the path and the goal that's good i think two things come to mind for me one is um well the main one is having uh, a family mm. okay of mostly having a wife okay? <laughs> exactly any any intimate partner having an intimate partner and really being wanting to have a cultivate love in that relationship will keep you Far from mastery. Okay, it's like Ram Dass, right? If you if you think you're alive and go spend a week with yeah. your family, it's that. It's just <laughs> like wow. So that's one. The other is in teaching to to have part of your mind in the t in the student seat, yeah. so that you get to have the experience of rediscovering the material mm. over and over again. You know, like if someone asks a question that you've heard a hundred times to you know you, you can boot that up and it's fine but part of you is like trying to just to listen as if for the first time right right yeah which is the thing about the spiritual life that is the spiritual life it's not like it's sort of i said it's not like you know it's the almost obvious thing all the time it's like <laughs> i always knew this you know it's a bumper sticker in some level yeah, it's I know. Like, but if you're in it experientially it's unbelievably fresh yeah and what do you hope for from a student of yours like i know you you, you teach sure. and yeah. you, you have a community mm -hmm. um both in encinitas where you live but also kind of broader than that more virtually than that mm -hmm. um and my guess is you, you welcome whoever knocks on the door that's but, true um i also would guess that you're like, if you've got some of this, mm. I'm particularly excited to be a teacher and I think you might particularly be resonate as a student. Is, is there yeah. something, yeah, other characteristics sure. of, a, of a student that you're totally <clears throat> open-hearted about? Yeah. It happened the other day on our community call. Someone said, basically, I'll summarize, this doesn't work. None of this works. You know, It's like, how long do I have to do this? You know, and it was really so, ref 
so good, so refreshing because <laughs> it wasn't like we're all in our yoga class speaking in hushed tones, you know. Yes. So there's like this capacity to be uh, to be undefended, not to be identified with it and whining, but just to be like this is the this is like the original moment. Yeah, I I have no I this isn't working. Really? I give up. You know? <laughs> and when it's done from that place of um, authentic unveiling, well, I find that to be so inviting and refreshing because because every one of us has that place and i have that place where i'm yeah. still like going is this really working <laughs> yeah i love that for me for me my, my language around that is or for myself anyway is constantly trying to be non-performative uh-huh. about my role moral righteousness uh-huh. one of the things that drove me nuts about some of the early coaching conferences I would go to. Yeah. It would all be radiating the sense of moral superiority because we were all coaches and we're all, you know, obviously we're all enlightened. And obviously we are. <laughs> totally. We're, we're totally. beacons of, of greatness and goodness and, you know, compassion. And I was like, that, that is just not who I am. I'm just dark and me. messy and twisted and sarcastic and yes. skeptical and, and I, I like coaching and I don't like coaching. I've got a kind of all of that going on. Um, and I, I really totally. bit at the kind of the, all we've got to do the, you know, the equivalent of the hush tones in yoga. Exactly. It, yeah. I remember one time when, uh, at, a, at the temple where my teacher Kriyananda taught, someone said, are you enlightened? And he went, doesn't it show? <laughs> you know, it's like, yeah. real, you know, that's the answer, right? Yeah. It's like, I mean, it, it was just a wonderful moment. And. Because, you know, it's not performative. I mean, you know. No. And in well, the last, so I don't know how much, I, I want to make sure I underline this one line of the please, Gita. yeah. Okay, which is, it's Kriyananda's version. It's 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 beautiful to me. It's, see, Krishna, reality says, I promise you will be illumined in me, which means if you if we open up and just let life touch us so deeply, we will be illumined. We will be blessed. We will find yeah. that love, all that. But he says, I promise he'll be illumined in me because you are my own destiny. I love that. That is so amazing, right? Right. Because reality can only wake up in your life as you. Wow. If this you're waking this is reality waking up to itself in this particular framework. And that's a that's a deep mystical, in my mind, mystical. It's a deep sacred teaching, you know, that in theistic words, God's trying to wake up and only can do it through you because God right. has no other vehicle. But in experiential terms, it's simply saying, by letting go, life discovers itself. And you get to discover that simultaneously in every breath. At the two companies I've started, Box of Crayons and now MBS.Works, we hold as a core value and a belief that it is process, even over outcome. And when that's working at its best, we spend time working out our best guess at what to do, and then we commit as fully as we can to the process, doing the work with all our imagination and all our rigor, and we let go of the outcome. Yep. Sometimes the outcome is extraordinary and amazing, 
Sometimes it's a bit underwhelming or disappointing. Sometimes it's an out-and-out failure. But we don't have much control of how the game plays out. I mean, you can make great choices, great decisions, and still get a bad outcome. You can make really poor choices and somehow still get lucky with the outcome. So that's why we keep committing to the process. But Eric's reading and our conversation has made me think a little differently or maybe just trying to shift and orient around this idea of process even over outcome. He said at one stage, it ends up with this kind of revelation that comes out of practice where I am the goal and the path. Maybe this is just me now wrestling with spiritual teaching that everybody else did 30 years ago. But what I like about this is that it offers the possibility that the process, the practice, isn't separate from the outcome. It actually somehow is the outcome. I mean, is this what people are talking about when they say non-duality? Maybe. (laughs) I'm not sure. But what it really does help me with is my own commitment, my own worthy goal, if you've read How to Begin, which is, at the moment, to be a writer. That's my practice. That's my goal. That's my path. I hope you enjoyed the conversation. I always love talking to Eric. He is a good friend, as I said right at the start. Two interviews that might uh, strike you in a similar way, same but different. Uh, Kevin Ashton, that interview is called Seeking Deep Connection. And Mia Birdsong, uh, our wonderful conversation was called The Sacred and the Mundane. You can find those in the archives, of course. If you'd like more of Eric, if you're curious about his uh, community, um, you can find more at wisdomheart.com. There's a newsletter, which is terrific. There's a lot of free resources there including the Seven Days of Clarity video course. And Eric and his wife also lead a free online Zoom meditation every Sunday. And that is also a wonderful experience. Eric is masterful at holding sacred space. Thank you for listening. Thank you for all you do to help this podcast flourish, whether that's giving it a review, sending a favorite interview onto somebody else, giving me feedback. All of that is glorious. You're awesome and you're doing great.